The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors, or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, put down the Woodford Reserve and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, ironically filling in for Lawrence, here to announce show number 161 with guest Mark Dunn, recorded live Friday, January 27, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet 2005 and ASP.NET 2.0 classes on-site and remotely, online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications, online at www.datadynamics.com and by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who taught Conan O'Brien's dog how to smoke cigars, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. You're listening to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. It's me, Carl. Here I am again. And uh, Richard, who just discovered his dog has torn his sofa to shit, Richard Campbell. Hey, I'm in a good mood. No, really. What happened? Uh, you know, uh, while we were getting ready for the show, the girls were getting home, so I went upstairs to let them in and got there to found, find the uh, sofa cushions torn apart and bits all over the place, and the dog going... What? <laughs> nice. So now the dog's locked in the kitchen, and I'll deal with it later. Wow. Oh, well, these these are the consequences. Uh, this is this is the point at which I say to my wife, "You know what your dog did today?" Yep. Well, it's been a good week here. Uh, Mark Dunn is here with me. Hi, Mark. Hey, Carl. We don't usually do things this way. Usually, there's some witty banter. This is you know the part that everybody has to suffer through before we get right. to the content. Um, but I'll include Mark in the banter. He, of course, is the original co-host of .NET Rocks. If you go down, back and listen to shows 1 through 50, everybody knows who he is. Greetings, original host. Hey. And uh, Mark was up here teaching the first VBNet 2005 class this week. And uh, it was an interesting class. Mark really worked hard to satisfy everybody in the class. We had a sort of a wide variety of interests of, uh, and people who some were more experienced with .NET and some weren't. So he, uh, he did a great job. But as we were sitting with some of the students having a beer down at Hannafin's Pub, um, there was uh, 
somebody made a comment about web services that they'd like to see some more, you know, real world stuff uh, in particular dealing with transferring large files. So I said, hey, I could do that. So I think it was that night or the next night I went, uh, I had a few hours and I wrote up a, a little file transfer protocol that uses web services. And what's neat about it is that it's not just a, you send one file and you wait and you get notified when it's done, but it breaks the file up into pieces, the size of which you can specify and uses asynchronous calls to the web service to send, you know, piece at a time. And I wrote some classes to describe the, you know, for the metadata of those pieces, the piece number, how big it is and all that stuff. And using uh, streams to write to the file, to read and write the data to the file and sending the data as byte arrays, it works really well. Not the fastest, obviously, because those byte arrays have to get translated into base64 strings before they can go over the wire. But hey, it works over port 80, and you don't have to use FTP, and you can upload as easily as download, and you get uh, you get the, the nice feedback. So I'll be making that code available soon. Right. It, but it was I was really... Im- not really amazed, but it's just very satisfying to know that I could whip off something like that in three or four hours, and it's really solid and good. Yeah, Stephen mentioned something, and Carl said, excuse me while I whip this out. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. How's teaching uh, Studio 2005? Is it is it tough? Is it new? You know, a lot of differences. Uh, there there are some differences, and uh, that that was one of the the challenges that I picked up on uh, this week because I I do a lot of code on the fly, and uh, you know I'll just wait for someone to ask you know hey how would you do X and I'll 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 do it. Uh, so I ran into some interesting bugs, uh, not not really bugs, but things that surprised me a bit this week. So. Mm. And we'll get into them in just a minute. Well, Richard, before we get started, uh, there's an interesting conference going on. Microsoft is putting it on March 20th through the 22nd at the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas. This is Love Mix. the Venetian. Yeah, this is Mix, the Mix conference. It's a web conference. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I have. Yeah, me too. Well, we decided to get Ray Winninger, the content owner for Mix, and Thomas Lewis from the evangelism team on the phone to talk a little bit about it before we get into the show this week. Hi, guys. Hi, how are you? Very good. Glad to have you on the show. So tell us what Mix is all about. So uh, Mix is a conference uh, where uh, it's really, it's all about the consumer web. It's a conference for folks who do large websites aimed at consumers, uh, you know, media sites, blogging sites, e-commerce sites, uh, that that sort of thing. Okay. So this is Ray, right? Yes. Ray, uh, you're the content owner. So the the stuff that we're going to see is targeted toward developers, but it's for developers who are writing websites for consumers. Is that right? Um, That's it, what I'm... It's really actually uh, targeted toward developers, designers, and business decision makers, all I three see. of those audiences. So there'll be some great deep technical content on the latest sort of web-related technologies that we're cooking up here at Microsoft. But we'll also have a lot of content on how designers can use some of these technologies to really boost the user experiences on their sites and offer, offer users on the sites uh, you know, more exciting things. And we'll have some content for business decision makers that uh, really goes into detail about how micro, you know, the various new Microsoft technologies can help generate new revenues, can help you know, solve a problem that your user base is having, and, uh, and, and so forth. Is this a new market for Microsoft and conferences? It, it is. 
um, this is actually the first time we've really uh, we've really addressed this particular audience. Several years ago, we used to run a conference called Site Builder, which was uh, which was about the web, but it was really geared more toward uh, you, you know sort of low level web developers. Um, here we're we're going after the largest sites in the world, and and you know we have a story that uh, for them that we want to tell, and uh, it is new, uh, but it's really exciting because of course as as everyone knows, this is where a lot of the the real interesting innovations in technology today are happening. And so, you know, we really look forward to kind of, you know, getting into that mix, so to speak, and and telling our story there. Yeah, speaking of mix, why, why mix? Why is it called mix? Um, it, you know that that's a, that's that's funny because actually mix there are three or four different uh, different um, reasons why it's called mix. The first is that right now um, the web is is in sort of this interesting transition period where what we're seeing is a lot of the old boundaries and definitions are 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 changing right now. So uh, for instance, things like what's the difference between a media company and a technology company? Um, that's that that boundaries getting blurry or uh, you, you know at, at a high level um, what's the difference between uh, a TV experience and a web experience that boundary is getting blurry and then even down to a low level on the technology side you know what's the real relationship between the client and the server you know new uh, new web techniques like Ajax are, are really starting to, to make that boundary blurry so right now there are all these old assumptions that uh, the the boundaries and definitions are, are starting to get get a little bit blurry and, and people are starting to rewrite the rules and so in a way on the web everything is mixed up. Um, another reason why we call it mix is because um, we really uh, we, we, we really intend to address this audience differently than, than we do our traditional audience and our traditional conferences. So in conferences like TechEd and the PDC, uh, you know, where we're speaking to to folks who have made big investments in the Microsoft platform, you know, they come to hear us speak and, uh, and to sort of, sort of indicate where the platform is going and, and, and whatnot. Here at Mix um, and, and the web space in general, Microsoft is, is really just one of several players that, that are, are sort of coming together to move the, the industry forward, move this segment forward. Um, our technology is important, but it's by no means the, the only technology that's relevant or important in this space. And so, you know, our technology has to interoperate with technologies uh, that come from other vendors, and, and, you know, we have to play nice in this heterogeneous environment. And so uh, we, we, also, um, we also view Mix as uh, it's, it's a mixture between our technology, the technology of others, our point of view about where the web and, and, and sort of the future of web applications is going, the point of view of others, and so on. Microsoft does have some new technology to offer into this space, though, coming, don't they? Absolutely. So that lineup begins with Internet Explorer 7, which will be shipping uh, next year, or I'm sorry, this year. We're past the first of the year now. Um, it's been a while since we've done anything with the browser. It's been, it's been uh, over four years, but IE7 will be coming soon, and uh, there's lots of exciting new features there that are of interest to, uh, to, to the folks who operate big websites, features around security and, and just around generally up-leveling the experience. And um, I, I should also say, and something that we're going to talk about in detail at Mix, is that um, we're, we're back into the browser game in a big way. So IE7, you, it, you're not going to have to wait another five years uh, before the next version of IE. In fact, we're going we're gonna to start to talk about our plans for the next version of IE and so forth at Mix. And, and we've got some interesting uh, and very exciting things on tap for that. 
Are you giving away a beta of IE7? We are indeed. In fact, there will be a, a, an almost up-to-the-minute build of IE7 at Mix. Um, it'll be the first time that, that the first opportunity you'll have to get this particular build. Hmm. And so beyond IE, um, there's a whole raft of technologies that are of interest to, to folks in this space, beginning, for instance, with Atlas, which is our new uh, cross-browser, cross-platform framework for building AJAX-like web experiences and, and you know, really um, making your site better, making it more responsive, adding a whole host of new user controls to your web page. Um, again, and, and the output uh, from this can be viewed on any uh, viewed in any browser on any platform. Um, that's a super exciting technology. Now, Atlas, if I may, uh, this you know is in has been in various states of beta, alpha. What state is it in now? What can we expect to see? So um, we, we first sort of unveiled Atlas to the public at the PDC last year, um, but what we showed there was really just sort of the tip of the Atlas iceberg, and we, and we just started to get, uh, get a little bit of the, the Atlas information out. What you're going to see at Mix is a much more complete version of the Atlas vision. There'll be a new, uh, new beta and, and new software that you can use. So there are um, bits you're like, giving out. Pardon me? So you're giving the bits to Atlas out. Absolutely. Absolutely, and, cool. uh, and, and lots of exciting new features of Atlas that we've really only hinted at will start to demonstrate at Mix. So Thomas Lewis, the Thomas Lewis. The Thomas Lewis, on Indeed. our show, again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what's your role inside of uh, Mix? So I'm one of the uh, scenario owners. We have uh, two scenarios for Mix. Uh, one we're calling the Next Generation Browser Experience, and that's the uh, scenario... I own, and the, that scenario in particular is really about sort of taking a lot of the things that Ray said um, and the different technology soup we have and really kind of creating a coherent story so that people can understand, hey, how can I take advantage of the browser and the technologies uh, that get presented through the browser? Um, but we're kind of going beyond that, and Ray, again, talked about that blurring um, of what, what actually is a website. And so we have a second scenario called Beyond the Browser, and that's where we'll talk about uh, other various technologies um, such as, you know, Windows Live and uh, Messenger and things like that. And, you know, how can folks take advantage uh, of those things? So, uh, again, I'm the next-generation browser experience owner, um, and we'll be talking about a variety of things. Uh, Atlas will be a big piece of that. So one of the sessions, for example, that we're going to have is uh, developing a better user experience with Atlas, and that's actually going to be presented uh, by Scott Guthrie, uh, which I'm sure you all know fairly well since mm -hmm. you've had him on the show uh, a few times. Yeah, indeed. Is, does XAML have any place at Mix, uh, or is because that ultimately results in Windows apps? Is, does that have a place? No, so absolutely. Um, XAML, which is a, a feature of the new Windows Presentation Foundation, um, there are several sessions at Mix where we'll be talking about that. And the applications that you develop using XAML, using WPF, can actually be run either inside the browser as web experiences or outside the browser as full client applications. So there are lots of exciting scenarios in both of those domains. And at Mix, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, we're going to talk about some key scenarios of interest to, to big websites, how they can use XAML to sort of spice up their web experience. 
how they can they can further exploit the features of XAML and WPF to go outside of the browser and develop a full client experience. And there are some cases where that may make sense. And and um, perhaps more uh, more interesting, we're going to show off some really cool examples that that some uh, high profile third party partners have been cooking up in both of those spaces. Sounds good. So listen, the uh, website is mix06.com. And if you're going to be in the Las Vegas area, if you're not going to be in the Las Vegas area, go March 20th through the 22nd. I, I take it they can register online at mix06.com. And, and what is the, uh, what's the damage for this conference? That's right. So uh, it's, it's nine ninety five. dollars Not bad. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so um, you, you know, nine ninety five. But there's a, a ton of great content there, and and great bits and learning that you'll get. And uh, and you know, we've had a we've had a lot of interest from from folks in this space. So we really uh, we really look forward to seeing all of you in Vegas. It's actually quite affordable, especially for Vegas, right? A- absolutely. And right. and you know, there's all sorts of options for where to stay and and all that. So uh, so yeah, we we think it is affordable. Ray Thomas, thank you very much for coming on the show and tell us about Mix. Thank you. We appreciate it. We'll see you in Las Vegas. Very good. And uh, before we talk to Mark, this email from a true DNR junkie is the subject line. Hi, Carl and Richard. A few years ago at a Russ's Toolshed event, I learned about a new internet talk show named .NET Rocks. Only a handful of shows existed at the time. A handful? I think there was one other. Maybe IT Conversations. That's it. But I was hooked from the start. Oh, the uh, Miss Deanne shows, I bet, is what he was talking mm-hmm. about. All my VB mentors appeared on your show. Appleman, Hollis, Vaughn, Lotka, Getz, Sheriff, and more. Even Pat Hines, my favorite instructor, was your first guest. I took Pat's VB3 class at Clark University in 1995. During class breaks, we'd visit Carl and Gary's VB homepage on our Netscape browsers to learn the latest VB tips and tricks. Well, this guy goes back a while. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. I kept up with DNR in, in, until March of 2005, when after attending your ASP.NET Masterclass, I got this crazy idea to re-listen to the first 100 shows. Well, here it is one year and over 160 shows later, and I've finally caught up. Don't tell my wife, though. She doesn't need any more proof that I'm a little compulsive. <laughs> <laughs> as I mentioned in an email you read on show 35, I spent 15 years as a radio announcer, I learned the best DJs make the listener feel like a welcome friend. You've done just that, Carl. Richard, Rory, and Mark, I feel like I know you. It's a little weird, I'll admit. I'm glad we could make you feel like a friend. And uh, just to continue along that path, why not uh, drink with me right now? Go ahead. I'm going to just take a beer here. And Mark, (laughs) we got our beers. Here, here. Here, here. All right. I feel I know you, too. Looking back on all the great interviews, there is one question I wish you had asked each guest. Carl, I'll ask you, and then Richard, what learning resources have you spent the most time with? I'm sure your listeners would appreciate some insight on how you gurus honed your expertise and got so freaking smart. Give us specifics, too. Book titles, authors, code samples, websites, help files, magazines, and more. How do you find the time and discipline to focus on learning? A great understatement I heard slip by on your show summarizes my passion and frustration as a developer. You said, quote, there's a lot to learn. Or to include a word I learned by tuning in, there's a lot to grok. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another show idea, have listeners submit anonymous programmer confessions. Well, maybe we don't really want to know. 
<laughs> anyway, <laughs> nothing personal, guys, but after a year of nonstop DNR, I'm looking forward to not listening to you for a while. Keep up the great work. And Carl, as a fellow guitarist, I've got to say your guitar jams rock. Give us more. Sincerely, Dan Lee. Dan, thank you very much. Man, I feel like I know Dan now. Yeah, man, that's great. <laughs> this medium and is... And your guitar jams do rock. Oh, There's thank no two you. ways about that. Thank you. I can, I've been known to shred. This, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this medium, and I love the show, and, and every once in a while, we just got to pat ourselves on the back. Well, emails like that are, are you know, very encouraging, aren't very they? Very encouraging. Get, it, get you fueled up yeah. for the next hundred shows. Juiced up. So, Mark Dunn has over 25 years of experience in the disciplines of software engineering, database administration, and project management. Software that Mark developed for the radio industry is still in use today. He was a lead developer on the team that created TapScan, a well-known Arbitron ratings analysis package that has dominated that industry for many years. Microsoft recently honored Mark by awarding him MVP status for his contributions to the Visual Studio.net community, Mark also co-founded .NET Rocks, an internet radio program. I really don't need to read this part of your bio. Right. <laughs> uh, recognized in over 80 countries and now hosted by Microsoft on the MSDN site. Mark is a certified trainer, application developer, solution developer for .NET, and database administrator, and president of DunTraining.com and partner to Franklin's.net. Mark, good to have you on the show again. Hey, it's always good to be back, Carl. What a what a week it was. It's true. Sure, you sure didn't was. sleep this much, did you? I didn't sleep much this week, no. <laughs> yeah. But it's good. I, I learned quite a few things. Uh, as a teacher, you know that you, you learn by uh, right. solving problems. You rose to says, the challenge. Hey, how, how do you do this? Exactly. Yeah, you go figure it out. So, well, and I like you. Both of you have a very similar training technique, which is to freewheel. You, that you basically let the 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 students take you you take themselves and you where they want to go, you know what do you want to talk about where do you want to go and 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 take some chances you know yeah, we the take, trade off being doesn't always go well but it's very real we yeah, take them where they want to go except for the strip clubs we yeah. we try to stay out of those well they're not any around <laughs> here that <laughs> well, there are you just got to know where they are oh I see. <laughs> Last time I last time I told uh, one of the students where the quote unquote gentlemen's clubs were, he got into a car wreck on the way there. So I don't, I just don't even bring it up. Wow. Anymore. Wow. If somebody car. asks me, I say I have no idea. I don't know. Uh, some of the uh, the evals uh, that you get back are are often you know good to help you improve in the future. Uh, but one of them uh, you know said, uh, "Hey, we spent a lot of time debugging." And uh, and that that's really the case. If you do things on the fly, yeah. uh, you wind up having to uh, you know to debug some stuff. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because you you learn by by debugging. Uh, one student told me this week. He said, "You know, I'm glad to see yeah. that you know you you uh, you run through and show us the debugging techniques to solve a problem." Yeah, I I, con I constantly get that feedback as well that they like the fact that something doesn't go wrong and that you solved it because watching you solve problems is is a lot, you know, goes a long way towards learning. Right, sure does. But that's what real-world development is like. Sure. Yeah, you spend a lot of time debugging. But, you know, not every instructor likes to teach that way. I mean, you know, uh, Carl is one of the only other guys I know that will do that. Uh, you know, I have a lot of instructors that work in my company, and uh, really most of them prefer uh, having all pre-writ demos yeah. and uh, 
you know, they've gone through them several times, so there's no chance anything's going to go wrong. Right. Very structured presentations. Right. Very structured presentation. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I can't stand to teach that way. I just like to know the stuff and then go, go do the stuff on the fly. Right. Yeah. So ADO.net is something that you've always been interested in and always been an expert in. And this, uh, we, last time we had you on the show, you talked about ADO.net 2.0. And um, in this week's DNR TV, you're also showing us, you're, you're digging uh, into ADO.net 2.0. Right. Uh, this week, what I thought I would do is take uh, basically all the stuff I talked about in the last show and yeah. go through since, you know, DNR TV is visual. You can see the code and see how it works. Right. So look forward to that on Thursday. But we're not going to cool. talk about that now. We're going to talk about your other passion, which is uh, drinking uh, <laughs> bourbon, <laughs> Woodford Reserve. Woodford Reserve. No, yes. no, I'm there. No, no, no. <clears throat> uh, no, I thought uh, <laughs> I thought tonight uh, Richard and I were talking about what would be a good subject uh, for this show, and uh, uh, we were kind of chatting about InfoPath. And I actually have a customer that uh, called me up about a month back. And they wanted a, uh, a you know a couple of day class on what they could do with InfoPath. So I I didn't know anything about InfoPath. I had heard of it, but didn't really yeah. know what it did. So I started to dig, to dig into it, and it's an awfully cool product. So I thought we could talk about that a little bit tonight, and sure. maybe jump jump into some uh, you know some other .NET topics if we need to. Sounds good. Now I have not I've done in I've done a demo in InfoPath, so I know a little bit about how it works. We've talked about it a little bit on the show before, but I guess we should just start at the beginning because, heck, we have the time. Right. And, uh, yeah, so let's start with what it is. All right. So what is InfoPath? And uh, first off, where where is InfoPath? Yeah, you, that's uh, a good question. You you wind up getting InfoPath if you install the uh, the Enterprise Edition of Office. And I believe you can also buy InfoPath as a standalone product. I, I don't know that for sure, but it uh, seems like someone told me about that in a bar one night. So, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> effectively, InfoPath's place in the world is a tool to help you create reports and share and manage data uh, associated with those reports. And you may wonder, why do we need uh, another report generation tool? You mm. see users, office users anyway, the power users out there, uh, doing some pretty impressive stuff with Excel. They do mm. it with Word. Uh, we have uh, automation languages or VBA built into those tools, so you can program them. You can glue them together, that sort of thing. So why yeah. do we really need uh, something like InfoPath? Uh, and <clears throat> that that was a question I asked myself. Once I, I started to get into it, uh, the, the beautiful thing about it, uh, InfoPath allows you to uh, graphically design a form and uh, and store the data, complex data, in an XML set that stays attached to the form if you want. Mm. Uh, it also allows you to connect to a variety of data sources. Mm. And will, uh, you know, sort of like you would expect most GUI tools to do, it can right. generate a front end uh, based on the schema of the connection mm-hmm. uh, that you go to. I look at InfoPath as a way for programmers to get out of doing really boring work. And, you know, that's that's not a bad thing, right? You know? I mean, I, I don't want to sit around, uh, you know, designing a report for uh, for two hours. Right. And there's somebody who might be familiar with access and designing access forms and reports that would feel really comfortable doing info because there's not a lot of programming. 
No, there, there's not a lot of programming uh, involved with it. Uh, there, there is a toolkit that you can download. Uh, uh, I think it's called it's free, uh, the Visual Studio uh, project for InfoPath, mm-hmm. and uh, that that will install a a, vid, uh, a Visual Studio project template that allows you to uh, connect and control InfoPath through .NET code, and it exposes events and an object model. Uh, so you could do that with it from .NET if you wanted to. Uh, and you could also write uh, components, if you wish, that uh, enforce business rules. You could glue or hook that up uh, to controls. But what I've started to see, the more people I've talked to about using InfoPath, is a lot of them use JavaScript or VBScript hmm. uh, inside InfoPath to establish complex business rules. So I guess that brings up the question, what are they writing that in and what container is used? Is it a browser? Is it a special app? What is it? Well, InfoPath is uh, is contained in in the InfoPath application. Although you can uh, put an InfoPath form up on the web, so there's a client application that deciphers the forms, builds exactly. the UI, sort of like a little Windows Forms browser kind of thing. Yeah, it is. It's like a, a little browser for the uh, the InfoPath forms themselves. Sort of, a, it's sort of a precursor to XAML, almost maybe. Yeah, maybe that that uh, it's a good would way be a good way, of it. good way to think of it. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I was also talking to some guys about what's coming up in Office 12. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one kind of one of the chinks in the armor I looked at with InfoPath is uh, with the current version, you've got to all your clients to really use it. They have to have InfoPath installed on the client. Yeah. Right. So it's not like you can create a report and send it to a guy without Office. Right. And he can really do anything with it. So do you think in reality that really requires Office proper to be installed, the whole thing, or... You say, is there a separate installation for you, InfoPath? You could install InfoPath separately mm. and still be able to use it. Now, you can put a report up on a website and be able to uh, huh. to look at it uh, in a read-only type of mode. But let's think about how you might use a report uh, in a business process. So wouldn't it be cool if you could uh, you know, start out with something, say, like an expense report? You have a template for it. And, and let's talk a little bit about maybe uh, sharing these InfoPath forms in a collaborative manner. Uh, one of the cool things about them is you can uh, put them in SharePoint document libraries. Mm. And, uh, you know, you could connect to SharePoint and you could open up the template for your expense report and go ahead and put your data into it, right? Now, uh, after you've got the, the data put into the expense report, let's imagine you work for some big company that has to go through an approval process. Okay. Uh, several people have to uh, to look at it and, and basically maybe add annotations uh, to the expense report uh, before it gets approved. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can stay uh, in, in SharePoint. You could have them open it up, uh, each of them look at it, and uh, and add their annotations. You could build the front end so you've got controls that allow them to uh, check off approvals. Uh, you can sign it with a digital signature if you want to. Huh. Uh, <clears throat> the other thing that uh, is pretty interesting is you can attach them to emails and Outlook. So yeah, someone, I was just thinking workflow for this. Interesting, now. right? For workflow, I fill in this form now. How does it move? Yeah, you you could you could leave it, you know, basically shared uh, in in a document library where you uh, you open the template, fill it out, and then save it. And it could create the XML, or it could actually connect to a database and stick the data in a a backend database where uh, you, you know someone else could come along later and open up and do some more with the form. Yeah. Or even more interestingly is the email option. You can attach that to uh, to an email with Outlook and, and send it to several people. Each of them opening and adding to the data in the form, it gets stored as attached XML. 
Very interesting. And, you know, uh, you know, I like BizTalk. So, sure. Uh, you know, you could, yeah, since this is all XML. Yeah, that's the other player here. Yeah, yeah. So now we, we've, you know, got, got even more glue to tie this together with, uh, you know, other legacy systems if we want to. We could take uh, the InfoPath XML document, uh, make that an input to, uh, to BizTalk, yeah. and, uh, you know, transform that data into something else, route it to multiple places. Um, uh, even if you don't have BizTalk, you can use a, a web service as a right. as a repository for the form. So you could build a. Does the web service get built by InfoPath too, or no? The the web service doesn't really get built by InfoPath, but you're able to connect to a web service uh, that uh, you know that's one of your options. Okay, for, so it's a data source. So the form would, the it, UI would be generated from the inputs on the web right, service. Exactly, I and it, it goes both directions. So uh, you know you can connect to a web service for output from it as well. Huh. So you can send the data uh, when you submit the form. You can send the data back through. Uh, the web service to whatever back end it has. Beautiful. Uh, another thing I should mention as far as data sources go, natively the current version uh, supports connecting to SQL Server and Access. But, you know, if you wanted to connect to Oracle or some other database, uh, you really have to wrap that in a web service. Yeah. I was going to say, where do rules get enforced and how do, how do those get? Is that where the programming, the script programming right. comes in? The, the script pro- programming comes in there. Also, if you're uh, an XML aficionado, uh, yeah. you, could, uh, you could enforce some rules through the schema itself, mm. right? Right. So you, you've got that ability. Uh, you can do it through script. Uh, you can also do it through components. Uh, mm. Also, the controls are extensible. Uh, if you want to write your own own controls and and put those into InfoPath, you can. It supports Active ActiveX controls. ActiveX, not .NET controls. I don't know if it supports .NET controls or not. Hmm. Uh, I, my thoughts are I'm certain the next version would, but and this one may. I just don't know. Uh, hmm. I know you, some. You can see that it's more an office product than it is a studio product, and it's still got ties to the the VBA engine. Right, very much yeah. so, very much. It's uh, very much an office product. I like the way you said that. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> the next version, though, one of the exciting things about it is it has a server uh, component to it. So oh, you basically hmm. are, are, are finally going to get to be independent of having to have InfoPath installed on the client. Oh, great. Uh, so very much in a sort of reporting services way, uh, you're going to be able to connect to forms through the web and interact with them over the web. Again, you know, this is something that I don't see myself using personally as a programmer, but it's something that I could, you know, train some less technical people in how to use and get a whole bunch of interfaces done really quickly. Right. I guess the only the only thing that I'm really concerned about is, you know, is following what if we have a whole bunch of existing business rules? Do we publish them as web services and the web services get in, uh, enforce the rules or well, the ab- web ab- services <laughs> host the components that enforce the a rules? And- one wonderful question. And, and absolutely, why not reuse that? If you've right. already got a bunch of business components that you're wrapping in web services right. and those are enforcing business rules, mm. uh, who's, you know, there's no reason not to let that stay in place. Right. Uh, it, you know, very much like the, uh, the sort of architectural debate that comes up over should I put a business rule in the UI? Yeah. Uh, should I put it in the middle tier? Should I leave it in the back-end database? Uh, the same thing would apply here. InfoPath is your user interface uh, for the form, and you have the capability of putting middleware out there. You have the capability of having a third data tier uh, for for an InfoPath application, if you will. It's it's seem it occurs to me that you know the architecture that we 
that we uh, use in the VB Net Masterclass is conducive to this kind of thing because what we do in the Masterclass is first we learn how to do the basic ADL fundamentals, and then we stop putting the code behind the forms and the buttons, and we move it into a component, Mm -hmm. compile that as a DLL, then we access that through a Windows application. The next day, we access it through a a web application, and and the rules are in the component. And then the next day, we access it through a web service. So since those rules are being enforced uh, through the web service, that would be a very... Uh, InfoPath would just be another presentation tier. Right, right. And I'm a big fan of centralizing things. You know, it's like sure. Lord of the Rings, one yeah. component to rule them all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Data Dynamics is the original sponsor of .NET Rocks. They believed in our show when we only had a half a million downloads a year. So, just by listening to this ad spot, you're helping them to help us bring .NET Rocks to your ears every week. Of course, I'm talking about their pride and joy product, Active Reports for .NET. Written completely in managed C-sharp, Active Reports for .NET sets the standard for .NET reporting. It's licensed per developer and is royalty-free to distribute. But let me tell you about the core feature set. Of course you get a report wizard, but it also comes with a Microsoft Access Report Conversion Wizard. Talk about productivity right out of the box. Now you can just upsize your Access Reports right into ActiveReports.net and you're off to the races. Of course there are export filters for PDF, Excel, RTF, HTML, text, and TIFF formats, and also Windows Viewer Control that supports split and multi-page views and includes a table of contents pane with a new thumbnail view tab. You can perform text searches of reports and it also allows customization of the viewer's toolbar. The professional edition of Active Reports for .NET features an end-user report designer control to provide end-users with the ability to create and modify their own reports. How cool, and that just comes with a product. You don't have to buy a separate license for the client. It also includes a server-side web viewer control that takes advantage of ASP.NET's HTTP handlers so you can display reports without having to write custom code for export to popular formats like HTML and PDF. And the new version of ActorReports.net includes a full-featured chart control, page thumbnails in the Windows viewer control, HTML and enhanced table support in the rich text box control, an enhanced script editor with syntax highlighting, And perhaps most importantly, you can data bind to any class that implements the iList interface, in addition to other supported data types. It's very cool. you got to check it out. Just all I ask is you go to datadynamics.com and download a trial version of ActiveReports.net. Hey, even if you decide to buy it, it's not going to break the bank. Very reasonably priced, and as I said before, it's licensed on a per-developer basis and royalty-free to distribute. Check them out at www.datadynamics.com. So I got to ask you, Mark, are you, are you excited to be here? Man, I, I got to tell you, I'm higher than a California condor on ecstasy. Uh, that's <laughs> how excited I am to be here. Uh, wait a second. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Carl, you ask him that question for no other reason than just see what he'd say. Of course. 
That was the big thing with the early version of .NET Rocks. He would say, man, I am so excited. I- I'm jacked up higher than a prom dress in June. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I just couldn't come up with a new one every week. I've had, I've had two years to think of a new one. <laughs> awesome yeah so how do we get back into the show after that i don't know well i could tell you the uh the the alternative to the condor one all right i was gonna say i was higher than a tibetan sherpa with a pound of hash (laughs) (laughs) but i think i'll use that one uh some other time uh, good to have you back, man. All right. My apologies to all Tibetan Sherpas out there listening to the <laughs> That's show right. tonight. The Tibetan Sherpa community. I'm going to hear from them. So let me see if I've got a view of InfoPath now. So essentially what we've got is a forms engine that consumes and works with XML that you have a bunch of event points on that you can write blobs of script to, including invoking COM components. That's correct. Did we really need another forms engine? Well, that that's what I'm hoping that we don't need another forms engine. Uh, and I'm I'm not sure about the you know the future of the product if this is going to be widely adopted. If it, I know some companies are using InfoPath, there was a big project at Toyota, and I can't mention my my customer right now, but they're a fairly large large company, and they're looking at InfoPath. I don't. I see. I don't see this as a deve- necessarily a, a developer technology. I see it more as a as a way to, uh, as I said before, allow less technical people the ability to create forms for large amounts of data input and entry. Right. It does it, seem very access like in that sense that it's it's a, a nice way to build a form. I guess the big difference here is that it's probably pretty lightweight because all in the end it's only generating XML. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's you know very slick. Uh, and, you know, you and I were, were kind of chatting about this before the show. I wasn't sure that this would be an interesting topic for listeners because, you know, as Carl mentioned, you don't really see this as being something that you, you know, you're opening up an InfoPath uh, project and writing a lot of code. Uh, but to me, it's an enabling technology for you as a developer. If you don't want to have to build the front end uh, to do the forms processing, maybe you don't have reporting services available to you uh, or that just doesn't fit to solve the problem, this is something you should look at to uh, to tap onto the front end of your web services out there. Mm. Very good. Yeah, actually, I can almost see you unloading forms development on another group of people, right? And then as and then having them bring you the finished forms that you can then implement code to in one form or another, right? And you you meet these guys out there sometimes. I run across them, uh, you know, teaching classes and talking to different companies that. Uh, you know, the term power user really does fit because, uh, you know, the, the, to me, these guys are almost frustrated programmers that just, you know, ha- haven't uh, started to learn to write code yet. But they do amazing things with Office products. Yeah. And, it, you know, scripting, not that I, I'm trying to say scripting is not programming, but it's probably not the level with which, you know, most of us are, are writing uh, code. You know, you're not writing usually object, you know, huge object models right. and, and script, but... Uh, you know, the, those guys are very familiar, intimately familiar with the object models for Word and Excel and PowerPoint, and uh, and that's really the glue. Knowing that script is the glue that ties them all together. Yeah. 
I, and it's it's compelling to me uh, to unload this as much work as you can to domain experts, to guys who really know how they do their job or how the job can be done most efficiently. You know, if you think about really what a form is or this UI is, is what information do I need to see when and how should I need to manipulate it? And the guy who can best tell you that generally is these power user, you know, domain specialists. They know what the machine can do within certain bounds, and they know a lot about their job. Right. And so that combination of knowledge makes them good forms builders. Now, they're not programmers. Then They're not going to be able to deal with the normalization of a database or even building a decent co- uh, component for moving data back and forth. But in how the user wants to see it, these are the right guys. Yeah, and you know, another point about getting domain experts is, is you're, you're taking a a thing that's very frustrating in most projects, consulting projects out, which is uh, the real gathering requirements process from developers that are not familiar with the system. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, it's it's yeah. kind of like, you know, you've got a developer out there, a consultant, and, you know, we come in to help a company. We don't know their business as well as someone that's worked there for 10 years, and there's no way we can. Yeah. But to solve a problem, you've got to sit down and talk to a bunch of people and figure out, how do you do work every day, and how can we help and make it more efficient? Well, it seems to me then you, you probably are talking about them building the user interface for data entry screens. Right. And if they're, so if that, they're business experts, why not let them do it? Right. And that, and that sort of drives the design for what happens in the middle tier and on the back end, doesn't it? Right. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, standalone without a data source uh, well, you would wind up making an XML file data source, but you can create an InfoPath file mm. that will produce an XML document. And mm-hmm. uh, you can then e- extract uh, you know, schema information out of that. You could use that to let the, the InfoPath form drive how you build an interface into a component if you wanted to. Well, what would you say to uh, those developers who... No, I'm not even going to go there because it's really not for developers. We sort of established that. I think we've run out of... Stuff to say about InfoPath. Do you think we should move on to another topic? Yeah, we should. We probably should. Uh, you know, the listeners out there that, that have never looked at it, uh, I, I think it's probably worth a few minutes of your time if you've got Office Enterprise. Uh, open it up and play around with it a little bit. Okay. It's a fairly intuitive uh, product to use. Uh, open up some of the sample forms, put some data into it, save it, look at the XML that's produced from it. Cool. Uh, or better yet, open one up, go through the wizard, and and connect it to your favorite web service that brings a data set back. Yeah, and, and then you it, don't, then you're not even designing the form; you're just letting it work. Right, do the work. You can, you can let it design the form too. And, cool. Uh, you know, it's a cool product. I think you'll enjoy it. So, what were some of the to shift gears here now? And this is probably a good place for a commercial. Let me think. I'm looking here. Yeah, thirty-two. Perfect. Well, I remember we got ten on the uh, mix thing. That's okay. So now shifting gears um, to another topic, uh, anything happened this week in uh, in the class that uh, sort of made you go, huh, how did that work and how did you solve it? Right. Uh, there there was probably one big thing that, uh, that kind of drove me nuts, and, uh, and I want to show this on DNR TV a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> so, really? Yeah, I do. I do. So uh, <clears throat> I don't know if any of you out there have ever uh, uh, experimented with the database project in Visual Studio 2005. But what you're able to do, uh, open up, you know, Visual Basic Project and uh, hit the the tree 
okay. uh, control that opens up your different sub-projects under Visual Basic. Uh, take a look under there and you'll see database. If you click on database, you'll see a template over there that allows you to create uh, a SQL Server database project. Uh, now, when you first open that up, it's going to look uh, fairly Spartan. You need to right-click on it and add an item to it, and you can create uh, a stored procedure, a trigger, uh, an aggregate function if you want to, hmm. a user-defined function, a user-defined type. Hmm. Uh, and these are all very cool. They're the CLR-supported uh, procedures you can now add to SQL 2005. Uh, so I've, I've done uh, a lot of little demos with these, uh, fairly comfortable with it, used to doing it all the time. Hmm. So I'm, I'm getting ready to show a demo of how to do it with the Northwind database because we installed Northwind. Okay. So I, I open this project up and build the procedure fine, no errors, and it's really sweet from Visual Studio. You can just uh, click up on the build menu and deploy it, and it will send it directly to SQL Server. Yeah. Go ahead and install it for you, and you're ready to rock and roll. Uh, so we went ahead and did that, and it gave me an error that said, hey, what you're doing requires you to have external access privilege. So when you get into SQL CLR procedures, you've got three levels of privilege you can set uh, for the, the uh, CLR code that you're deploying. It can either be safe, it can be external, or it can be unsafe. So uh, examples of why you might want to do something external if you had to access the file system, uh, you know, basically the stuff that you put uh, as assemblies into, into SQL Server are ratcheted down uh, a little bit tighter than what we have with... Uh, assemblies that, you know, are, are running in the, the external uh, CLR from mm. uh, SQL Server. Mm. Uh, so at any rate, you try to, uh, you know, open something like a disk file, you would need to give it external access. If you wanted to go further and let's say that you wanted to make an API call into, uh, into kernel mm. and play, uh, you know, a, a media file or something, mm -hmm. I guess you wouldn't go to kernel to play a media file, but, uh, you know, if you want to make an API call, you're going to have to set it to unsafe mm. uh, to allow it to do that. Uh, so the message I'm getting back says you've got to set this to external. Now, all I was doing is I, was, I wrote a user-defined function, and I passed a string into it and basically formatted the date to be a long date string. So I'm not doing any external file I.O. And I thought, you know, hmm. what the heck? Pretty this, safe. Yeah, it should work just fine being safe. Uh, so then, you know, I, I thought, okay, I'll play. So I go and set it to have external privilege and try to redeploy it. And then it tells me, hey, you know, you've got to grant DBO, external assembly, uh, privilege on the database. At that point, I was, you know, thinking, hey, something's wrong here. Uh, so my friend Sean Wildermuth, who I think was on the show the other, other day, yeah. got him on IM, and I was like, hey, Sean, how, you know, what's going on? Why is this not working? And, uh, you know, Sean was very helpful and said, you know, Jim, I'm glad I'm not teaching that class. So, uh, <laughs> but at any rate, he, he was incredibly helpful because he said, hey, did you check the database compatibility level uh, for Northwind? Uh -huh. And I thought, oh, no. You know, I felt like Homer Simpson. So I <laughs> go over there and uh, look in Northwind, and sure enough, it's set to compatibility level with SQL 2000. And uh, ah. that that's going to bite you if you're not careful, if you're mm. restoring. Is, now, did that happen because you upgraded from 2000 to 2005? Well, I actually didn't install this Northwind database. What I feel like probably happened is uh, someone attached it from a backup, or they probably restored it from a backup from SQL 2000. And it, right, it, because more Northwind than likely, doesn't ship with 2005. Right, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. 
But, you know, I, I use it in demos a lot, and what I'll do is uh, you can download the scripts for both Northwind and Pubs, yeah. and I'll usually extract those scripts and just create my own Northwind and Pubs. Now, now you know that Northwind was installed as a 2000 database. Yes. It was, but this was total, This showed up in 2005. Right. Well, it's because we, we put it in there. We put it, put, in it in. There. Right. So put it in there. Someone put it in there. That's because I, when you were giving us the requirements, one of the things was the Northwind database. So, okay. Yep, exactly, yeah. exactly. But you're right. Probably somebody probably attached it because it's the fastest way to do it. Yeah. And SQL Server 2000 was smart. Five was smart enough to think, oh, this is a 2000 uh, MDF. I'll just leave it in 2000 yeah. mode. Exactly, exactly. It's trying to help you. No, really. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, but you know, the error. The the point that I want to get to is if you encounter an error message like that, that that's not exactly uh, giving you a good clue as to what's really going on. Yeah, you're a long way removed from the actual problem. Right, exactly. So, uh, so that was that was curious to look at. You had another issue with uh, asynchronous an asynchronous method. Remember that one? Uh, asynchronous yes. call to a query. Yes, that's right. I was uh, I was actually in, and uh, I'll let you talk about how you fixed this because okay. I I, uh, I asked Carl to come and take a look at it. So uh, so basically, I thought, you know, I want to show how you can do uh, asynchronous processing with, uh, with data readers, right? So I, I created uh, a couple of list boxes, and I, I set this up so that uh, you could run them on two different threads and populate the list boxes with the data readers. And uh, you, you would see that while it was running a long query, you could move the form around. Uh, and actually, instead of moving the form around, what I was doing was updating a label in the UI. Mm. So they would see, you know, the label updating while the query's still running. So the, the query that I did uh, sort of selected all the rows out of, uh, I think, the products table in AdventureWorks, which I forget how many rows it has. It's, uh, you know, over 500, I think. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot. <clears throat> so anyway, it, it pulls those rows back and uh, it, it would happen quickly enough that you could see the labels update in the right order, which proved that it was running asynchronously. But it wasn't such a tight loop to process that reader that that you really saw it slow everything down. Yeah. So then one of my students said, you know, hey, why don't we make a cross join out of that? I, I <laughs> really want to. I really want to make it run, you know, longer. So I was like, no problem. So that's exactly what we did. We went in and made a cross join out of it, and uh, of course, then the UI slowed down to the point that you couldn't move the form. But the labels were still updating. So right. I was trying to go, hey, this is still running asynchronously, or these labels wouldn't be updating. And you know, some were like, we're not convinced. Right. So uh, you know, I wrote a function and called it from a component and you know, added a couple of numbers together and did that after the query started running. And of course, we compute the number and we update that in the UI with no problem. But still, I was having the issue with it not letting go of the window. And I, I was stumped. I didn't know exactly what to do with that. So uh, yeah, you mean you know it's asynchronous, and you're able to do other things. What's impairing your ability to move the form around? Right. Yeah. So I, I, I thought, you know, I'm not sure what's going on here, but fortunately, I know uh, Carlos over here in the other room. So I, uh, I asked Carl to come take a look at it and tell He's him what you did. He's such a smart did. guy. So the first thing I looked for, obviously, was you know, was he doing the right thing with the uh, delegates and using me dot invoke to do to do that. Uh, to make the thread safe, um, to make the call safe and safely on and synchronized on the UI thread, and he was. So that wasn't it. Then I noticed that his uh, the code to execute the query and return the data reader was happening on the background thread, but the code to bind 
to, to go, not to bind, but to go through, to iterate through that data reader and add the items to the list box, that was on the UI thread. And when you go and fetch data from a data reader, that takes time, right? So, uh, the first, so the next thing that we did was, uh, and this was like 2,500 rows that 20, was coming 25,000 because 20, it, was 25, cost, it was a cross, cross joint. Right? 25,000. Yeah. So there was a lot of rows that came back. So the first thing I did was, I turn, I thinking that it might be, you know, the list box, because when you're adding data to a list box, it repaints after every one. And so right. I thought that might be taking up some CPU cycles. And by the way, the CPU was like at 100%. So I turned off, I, I set, uh, what was it? Uh, there was a, a, a couple of methods, begin, update, and end update. I think it's like there's right. begin something and end can't remember what they were actually but they were methods that you turn on you turn one of them on when for you're for the list box that's for right. the list box when mm-hmm. you're when you're going to fill it and then uh you you when you're done you it basically turns off the notifications for the event so it doesn't repaint begin fill and end fill or something like can't remember I'm sure an alert reader will make it and will send me what I did. But, you know, here, I, it was just a few days ago. I can't even remember the name of the method. And it's something's been a wrong. long week. It's something's long. wrong with me, man. Yeah. Something's wrong. Uh, anyway, so th- that that didn't make any difference, really. And uh, then what uh, I, I thought we might do is put the whole thing into an array. Was it an array or a collection? I know we made a... I think you put it in a collection. Yeah, so I iterated through the data reader and put the data into a collection, yep. a bindable list of string, basically. And then I returned that bindable list of string to the UI thread. And that's what, and then did the binding. And that's what, uh, right. that's what worked. Now, well, that initi- didn't initi- really do yeah. the trick. That didn't really do the trick. It still took, it, it updated and it let we move the stuff around, but it was still taking a long time, yep. you know, and, it, and the CPU was such that, you, that it was obvious that the CPU was so high that that was what was causing the real right. problem. And Carl pulled so up the, the machine task. was still working really hard. Yeah. yeah. Well, Carl pulled up the task manager and it was just pegged. Yeah. It was It was full out. Right. So basically, what I did was on that thread, I just set the thread current thread uh, priority to below normal. Mm-hmm. Right. And that worked. Another thing that you could have done, which would have slowed it down, would be to put that thread to sleep for about a millisecond. Even a millisecond in between each in the, iteration. In the loop and the reader. Yep. Yeah, in the yeah, background. But I think thread. lowering the priority is a more reasonable answer because it gives Windows the ability to assess I think so too. how much time to give it based on what else is going on. Where sleep, you're forcing that time to be lost. Yep. Yep. You lose a lot more time when you sleep, and that, that keeps the processor in check. But, you know, the priority is still high and it's going to take a long time. So, yeah, that, well, the, right. and that the point out. here is that when you're when you go to move the the form, you want it to move. Right. And you want Windows to give you enough cycles to be able to move it. Right. But when you're not moving the form, you want the thing to fill as fast as possible. And sleeping isn't going to do that. Sleeping is going to put an arbitrary limit on how fast it can fill. Exactly. Where priorities is going to allow the machine to assess what it should do. Yep. So it, it turned out it, this is a, a good technique to do on any thread that's, you know, the reason the reason that you would do something on a background thread is because it takes a long time. You want it to happen. Right. And, you know, anytime you see those uh, alternate threads, I should use that terminology instead of background thread. But anytime you see those threads pinging, you can just say system.threading.thread.currentthread.priority uh, equals and then select below normal. Right. And that will... Uh, 
That'll do I it. I think that's a pretty good policy in general. I mean, the whole point about spawning off these other threads is that you don't care how long they take. You just don't want them to interfere with what else is going on. Exactly. What, what better definition of low priority can you have? Yeah, can't everyone play together well? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it almost reminds me of back in the 3-1 days where we had to give up our cycles in order to allow multitasking to work at all. Right. And here we are almost at the same problem again, where we've got such high performance code that given a chance to grab as much processing power as it can, it will to the point of dragging down any machine. And you have to, again, be a good citizen and assign yourself that lower priority because you know you're not that important. Even though you could eat up every resource in the machine to get your thing done faster, you're just not that important. So lower your priority and, and let other things function normally. Right. We also have another uh, had another really interesting issue happen that uh, one of the one of the students brought right. up, and it would, it wouldn't really as much of an issue. It's just an observation. It was an observation. Yeah. It, was, it was an observation. I hadn't seen this before, but apparently it's been around for a while. So why don't right. you? Right. So uh, you can test this yourself. Uh, we we were basically looking at memory management and the way the GAC processed uh, clearing off the heap, and I I had gone into uh, you know. Uh, the uh, performance counters for uh, for .NET, and uh, had started to show uh, folks how how the numbers were affected. Now, uh, the next thing that we were looking at when we, uh, or I guess we had uh, the task manager up and had the process list up, and I minimized one of the windows that we had, one of the forms. Well, uh, because I had it highlighted and we'd been watching its memory consumption, suddenly it went from like, you know, eight or nine meg uh, down to you know seven or eight hundred k and pop down to the bottom of the list. Yeah, and you know, huh. of course, now I've got a room full of students going, "Oh, that's cool. What the hell is it doing?" Yeah, what's and I going was on? like, <laughs> "You know, cool for you." Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. I, I did. I was like, I have no clue. Uh, I think I'm going to take a break now. So <laughs> <laughs> run away. Yeah, that's right. What, I heard you, my mom calling. What you don't know everything? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but <clears throat> it just so happened that, uh, you know, again, Carl fortuitously walked in about that time, and I go, Carl, what do you think? And, uh, and I don't know. Infinite wisdom, Carl's like, holy shit, I don't know what, what that's doing. <laughs> 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 I'd never seen that before. Yeah. I really like the way you guys maintain that air of professionalism of and comfort yeah. with the problem. <laughs> yes, but no other training company will give you ribs. Yeah, for dinner, for lunch, <laughs> ribs, and, and uh, take you out for a beer. Yeah. Ribs and uncertainty. I right. love it. Yeah. What a great combination. But anyway, so I mentioned this on the alias to the uh, to the regional directors, and of course, you know Billy Hollis and Rauschenberger and a whole bunch of people jumped in and said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we've seen this before. You know, this is this is a known phenomenon." And then and it even predates Framework Two. Yeah. And they pointed me to an explanation, which is at shrinkster.com slash BJJ, which is from Rick Strahl's weblog, the title Reducing WinForm Memory Footprint with Set Working Set. And uh, basically, he says, if you ever run your app and looked at Task Manager, you might have noticed the app starts out with a significant amount of memory. A basic WinForm app with a couple of text boxes and a button typically will run around 8 megs. If you move the form around a bit closer to 10... You can then minimize the app, and it generally reduces to some really low memory usage number, which slowly creeps back up as you open the form back up. What's happening is that the app internally is adjusting the working set 
for the application, which aggressively reduces the memory in use by the app. The app will reclaim what it needs, but for that moment, the memory usage goes down drastically and it will stay much lower than the original startup usage. A lot of it has to do with the JIT compiler load. Right. Uh, the JIT compiler needs to be loaded and, and, and it in and of itself uses a lot of memory. And, you know, what's interesting in that article, uh, you sent me the link to it uh, earlier today, and I, I took some time to read through it. Uh, he actually shows you a way to programmatically set the working set size down. Yeah. So you can make it try to adjust itself down, or you can you can have Windows give up some of that memory. But, you know, he goes on to warn you to say, you know, hey, that may make your memory look better, but this could actually impact performance because yeah. eventually it's going to need to reclaim some of that memory. You know, it's been a really long time since anyone gave a shit at all about memory and, and right. that. Right. <laughs> right. But, you know, it makes a lot of sense what it's doing here. It grabs a whole bunch of memory up front because the program's in the foreground. You just started it and you want to use it. And it wants to be as fast as it can be for you. Right. So it's got a lot of space to work in. It's good to go. The moment you minimized it, you basically said to it, you are no longer important to me. And so it gave up everything it could give up. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah, having, using a lot of memory is actually a good thing. Your app, your applications run faster. They don't have to do so much uh, thrashing about. And hey, let's face it, memory is still cheap. It was yeah. cheap two years ago, and it's still cheap. As long as it surrenders it when it doesn't need it. Yes. And now you, that's the big thing here is the – this is – you know, one of the guys in the chat room has mentioned this is really an operating system behavior. Yeah. The OS – and it's more along the lines of this is .NET's ability, is .NET recognizing, hey, I'm the major app, bring in every resource we can so that we can uh, do what they ask us to do as quickly as possible. And when I'm not, let it all go. And yep. you really don't want to mess with that. I think, generally speaking, the, the over, overriding that is going to lead to more negative consequences than positive. I agree. Right. Uh, do you want to move on to, to topic number three now for, sure. uh, for this? So I think we've beat the memory thing a little bit. <laughs> yeah. All right. <clears throat> so the next thing, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask listeners out there, if you have a solution for this, I want to know because I'm, I'm going to try to research a way to make this work. You may have experienced it before, but if you're using data sources, right, and, and we've, we've had a, a sorted history with data sources in my <laughs> consulting practice, let me tell you. So uh, Sorted. Yes. Well, we, we actually go with the tried and true pattern uh, still of using data adapters. Uh, we use data sets, data readers, SQL commands. And uh, we really only use data sets when we absolutely have to. We're, we're big proponents of, uh, of doing things, uh, you know, through stored procedures, directly calling commands, uh, that kind of thing. And that all still works, right? Uh, nothing wrong with it. Still works great. But we have this new animal out there, uh, you know, the data sources that are available. You've got SQL uh, data sources, you've got object data sources, and you can bind to those. And they, they, they really freaking rock on websites because if you bind uh, to a data source there, you don't have to write the code to sort or, you know, uh, uh, page or do updates. Uh, it, it just does all that goo for you. Right. So, right. you know, that that's pretty compelling to me, and I use it in demos a lot. But what I had not done with it was created a strongly typed data set that I attempted uh, to bind with it. Right. So what we were doing in class, we're writing, you know, a business component. And I did both, you know, business components using uh, strongly typed and non-strongly typed data sets. But I decided, okay, I'm going to bind this to, uh, uh, you know, uh, an object data source and pull it in and have it update a grid. 
And it just didn't work. It would tell me it couldn't find the field and the schema, but you know that you're pulling in a good schema. So then I thought, okay, I'll go to Google and see, you know, somebody's bound to have come up with a solution for this. Uh, After spending about an hour, you know, going through a bunch of Google pages, I found everyone discussing that this is a problem, but nobody had a solution for it yet. So the closest thing I've found is I think you can uh, you can implement an iList interface and then go in and expose all of your uh, your columns, and the binding would work. I haven't tried that. Uh, maybe somebody out there has. But uh, I'm curious if anybody has come up with a solution for dealing with strongly typed data sets through object data sources with, uh, you know, 2005. A good call to action to our listeners. And Mark, I, I owe you a debt of gratitude. Really? Yep. When we were in Atlanta for the road trip uh, event, and we and you, your company threw that party, and we got some great interviews there. I had for the first time a bourbon called Woodford Reserve that you turned me on to. Oh, it's good stuff. And uh, I, while you were here this week, the two of us put a little bit of a dent in the bottle of Woodford Reserve at Hannafin's Pub. We sure did. And no, I I, I really like that. I mean, I've I've I'm not a heavy drinker at all, but every once in a while I like to have you know some some fine whiskey, whether it be Scotch or bourbon, usually Scotch. But um, I've sort of got into bourbon in the last few years, and in, in that Woodford Reserve is by far the nicest bourbon I've I've ever had. Right? Yeah, it's it's very good, very good stuff. And uh, no argument for me. Well, yeah, they, we we need to let them know that you're advertising their product. Uh, yeah, there, yeah, there's an idea. Well, actually, back at Christmas, uh, I guess when you were, uh, it was right before Christmas that you uh, you came up and did uh, right. the, the .NET Rocks uh, Roadshow. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, somebody listening sent them in that uh, I had held a tasting for them or whatever at this <laughs> thing. And uh, they sent me this nice little decanter for, uh, really? for Woodford Reserve. So, wow. Yeah, I, wow. I appreciate them doing that. All right. So here's a, a, you know, a call to action for all our listeners. Call to action number two. Contact Woodford Reserve and tell them that uh, .NET Rocks is promoting their product. And That's right. Tell them they're a friend <laughs> of the show, baby. Carl Franklin, care of Franklin's Net, 302 State Street, New London, Connecticut, 06320. <laughs> send that case Anything of, for free booze, huh? Send yeah. that case of Woodford Reserve right here and it'll be well taken care of. All right, Mark. What can I say? Great have you here. Great to glad you're teaching classes with us. We're partnering here. Um, Absolutely, this, is, uh, this has been wonderful, and it's good to see you again. And I'm sure the listeners would love to hear your voice again. Yeah, so. I'm I'm glad to uh, to be talking again. <laughs> All right, <laughs> <laughs> I've been in seclusion with Tibetan monks, and uh, you know. <laughs> you got a Tibetan monk thing I don't know about. I know, I know. It's just something on my mind. I, I have, I've really only averaged like sleeping four hours uh, a night this week, so I, I'm a little loopy. I'm, I'm afraid. Have you uh, downloaded anything cool lately? Seen anything on the web that you really are knocked out by? Uh, well, actually, we looked at something this week uh, called Regulator. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this or not, but no, not uh, yet. Uh, if you like to play around with regular expressions, uh, there's a site that I always send uh, students called uh, uh, regexlib.com. Yeah, me and, too. Uh, and you know we'll we'll usually go in and look at validation controls and ASP.NET apps, and uh, you know we'll use kind of the uh, the general email address 
regular expression that's built into uh, to Studio uh, for the validation controls. But then I go, hey, you could do more with this, right? Mm-hmm. So we go out to Regex Live, and you wind up seeing something that looks like a cartoon character that you've just cut his foot off. <laughs> uh, you know, this this thing that goes on forever with all these characters. That, right, right. Uh, that's what they they look like cartoon characters cursing to me when I see regular expressions. <laughs> you know, I, I'm glad someone programs <laughs> these things, but uh, but we usually pull those down and we'll we'll put one of those in and test it. And uh, there's a a client that connects to regexlive.com to allow you to pull and test regular expressions. It's downloadable from there, and it's called uh, the Regulator. What a great name! Uh, so you can download that and play with it. Is that Roy Osherov's? Tool? I think it so is. Yeah. I think our friend it's on SourceForge. Our, I found it. That's right. Our friend Roy Oshiro. Oshiro. Props out to Roy. Oshirov. 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 And you know, I actually got to meet him at the MVP summit. Yes, I did too. So it was yeah. cool. Yeah, and he gave a a good review of uh, Hansel Minutes online. Awesome. And I believe he's doing his own show. I'm really? not sure, but wow. yeah, I thought. I thought I saw something about him getting into podcasting. I'm not sure. Sort of the, and and I think he's from Israel, isn't he? Yes, he is. Right, so yep. kind of the .NET rocks. Yeah. Israel style. Yeah. All right, man. Glad to have you on the show again. That's right. Data sources. Oy vey. Oy vey. Woodford <laughs> Reserve. All right. We will catch you all next week on .NET Rocks. Thanks again for listening. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Toy Boy, let me